So I'm going to start uh, reviewing what I said yesterday. When I talk about bowing as a gesture that combines both acceptance as we come down and then the need to act appropriately as we come back up again. And what I encouraged you to do yesterday was to see the two aspects of the bowing, the two aspects of the connecting with life, because the bowing is just a metaphor for that. These two aspects as non-dual, as not separate, separable. Just to understand that neither is fulfilled without the other. That acceptance alone, if we just accept things as they are, period, we are into resignation, we are into just putting up with things. And if we act, just act, then we are really not looking at things as they are. We are avoiding the depth of understanding of things. On the other hand, wise acceptance, if acceptance is wise, it needs spontaneously to appropriate action. And wise action can only come from acceptance of things as they are. So, I made this point, but also I acknowledged that very often we have difficulties with this and we stay in the duality of things. Today I want to highlight a particular aspect, a particular way in which we get stuck in the duality of things, which is our compulsion to move into action in order to obliterate the, the bowing down, the acknowledgement. This is how things are. This is how I feel, how sad I feel, how pained I feel. So the in other words, we are so eager to go after the light at the end of the tunnel because we cannot bear to be in the tunnel one more second. So the talk could be called the light at the end of the tunnel, but I am avoiding that because uh, it may encourage people to go after that light. <laughs> so. I modified the title as the light in the middle of the dark tunnel. So that's what I'm going to talk about. It's not a very common concept, I must say. So more specifically, more concretely, I want to challenge the concept, the idea that happiness is found by avoiding, by getting out, 
of the dark and difficult places we find repeatedly always ourselves in. Places where we are in pain, where we are confused, where we are depressed. And we feel we must get out of them as fast as we can. We feel we have to rush to the whatever brightness we seem to see here and there, illusory most of the time. In other words, we feel we need to chase a proverbial light at the end of the tunnel. Now, you could say, and it's... Um, it's often verbalized in groups, and I understand that very well. You could say, what's wrong with chasing after the pleasant and avoiding the unpleasant? Because, of course, the light stands for pleasant. The darkness stands for unpleasant. I think it's a good point. And it's, it's a point that the, the suttas deal with very explicitly. What's wrong with choosing the pleasant? Because truly, the bulk of the suttas is about not, not being always chasing after that. But occasionally, somebody will come along in the suttas and say, well, what's wrong with that? Here's a, a quote that I like very much. Let me see if I... This is five... Yep. It's, it's not, you know, the, the suttas, the scriptures, largely contain pronouncements by the Buddha, but also, often enough, too, by his uh, aides, his, uh, the senior monks that uh, were with him. And this is a, an instance where Sariputta, perhaps his, the most senior of his monks, is being asked, what does our teacher teach? And he says, sorry, Putta, our teacher, friends, teaches the removal of desire and lust. When you have answered thus, friends, there may be wise catchers wise ascetics, that's what it means, who will question you further, for wise people, friends, are inquisitive. Hmm, good point. So the next question is, in regard to what does your teacher teach the removal of desire and lust? And then Sariputta says, our teacher, friends, teaches the removal of desire and lust for form for feeling, for perception, for volitional formations, for consciousness. And for those of you who are not familiar with this technical language, it's for, these are called the five aggregates, and they're all aspects of our being, really, of all our perceptions, all the things that we are aware of. Okay, now there's, there's wise um, listeners, continue to ask. Having seen what danger does your teacher 
well, our teacher also, teach the removal of desire and lust for form, the removal of desire and lust for feeling, perception, volitional formation, consciousness. And then comes the answer. If, friends, one is not devoid of lust, desire, affection, thirst, passion and craving in regard to form, then with the change and alteration of form there arises in one sorrow, lamentation, pain, displeasure and despair. And the same thing he states for all the other aspects of oneself. In other words, if one is, I mean, you could look at for, form, could stand for the form, shape of your body, if you wish, you know, very contemporary sort of thing, of concern. If, if, if you are attached to the shape of your body, you're in trouble, because it's going to change. And, and the Sariputta continues to be very explicit about this. He says, if friends, one who enters and dwells amidst unwholesome states, could dwell happily in this very life without vexation, despair and fever, then the blessed one, the, the Buddha, I mean, would not praise the abandon of unwholesome states. Very clearly. If it didn't create all these problems, then the Buddha wouldn't make any big deal about that. Lust is fine. There's nothing wrong with lust in itself. Is that inevitably it leads you to despair. So he repeats to be more explicit. But because one who enters and dwells amidst unwholesome states dwells in suffering in this very life with vexation, despair and fever, because of that the Buddha praises the abandoning of unwholesome states. So, like all the teachings of the Buddha is pragmatic, has to do with the end of suffering. If what we chase after was something that we can get for ourselves, for good, no problem. Chase after the light, chase after pleasure, period, no problem. But because it's impermanent, we keep going from tunnel after tunnel after tunnel. We may get at the end of this tunnel and see the light and wham, we're hit by the next one. You know, we manage to lose weight. Well, maybe we can keep it down, although it's very difficult. But then we age, for heaven's sake, that's even worse than getting fat, right? We get a good job. Jobs are not permanent. Even if you continue to have a good job, there's this concern. I mean, unless you're a tenured professor, even there, this thing doesn't happen much, much more nowadays, I know. My daughter has that problem. You recover from illness. 
What's the guarantee that you're not going to fall ill again? In fact, the guarantee is that you will fall ill again sometime or another. You find a partner. What about that one? You know, huh? Even if you stick, stuck, if you stay with the partner, I mean, there will be ups and downs. You get out of depression. Oh, forget it. There will be another tunnel. And then, as we know, although we don't talk very much about this, there is a darkest and most definitive tunnel of them all, which is death. How are you, we going to get out of this one? Yes. I know. Maybe heaven. Try that one. Now, these tunnels visit us so frequently in the practice. Oh, yes. We rehearse, we do these dry runs in the practice about getting out of the tunnels we are in. So, we bring these tunnels to the microcosm, to the experience of the practice. And we explore. And we, sometimes we think we can get out. We play and replay the tapes of the tunnels we've got into. And sometimes we try to find uh, happy endings. Even, even this looking at the tapes becomes an additional tunnel. So we're in the practice and we are aggravated by sitting there. Why do we have to sit there? When in earth is a gong going to ring, you know, or, or the knee pain, when it is going to go away on that sound that I cannot stand, that noise from the street, from the air conditioner, whatever, all becomes another tunnel, the practice. There's just the sitting becomes of, um, um, takes the place of a tunnel. All the times, uh, what we do is to pretend we are okay. Is, uh, you know, just distract ourselves. It reminds me of that play by Tennessee Williams, uh, Glass Menagerie, where there was this woman who's every morning she woke up her daughter saying, Rice and shine, rice and shine. And the daughter couldn't rise. Well, she rose because she had to get up, but couldn't shine, for sure. One tunnel that uh, many of us have felt uh, engulfed in. Uh, recently is the tunnel of war. Of course, there are all, all levels of war. There's personal wars. I mean, there are many personal wars that we have. And then collectively, this month, 
we've had to deal with a, a very dark tunnel indeed, and not denying the darkness of it, the war in Iraq. Yesterday I was reading from this article in Buddha Dharma by a woman called Melanie. Melody, sorry, Melody. Irma Child Davis, Chavis, sorry, Irma San Chavis. And uh, I'll reread it because it fits very well in, in, in this uh, tunnel description. She's talking about how she's bearing with the war situation in herself. It says, my nervous system seemed to command, do something. I felt I had to try to stop the war. So with many others, I wrote letters and faxes and emails and I read articles, marched, passed out lef leaflets and marched some more. And by the way, nobody is saying there's anything wrong with all of that. Just looking at the motivation. These are all good things to do, of course, but I rarely took a deep breath to relieve the dread that clamped my chest. My fear spiraled higher in tighter and tighter circles. I, myself, completely went to war. The war rampaged in my brain during my distracted days and at night in my restless dreams. She goes on. This article rings very true to me because uh, I had a very similar experience during the month-long retreat I sat in March at the Forest Refuge. Um, war broke out in the third week of March. I didn't find out about it until the fourth week. But nevertheless, all the indications were there. So, uh, first week, nothing much happened to me. I entered the retreat, and things started to move inside, ripen, come, whatever needed to come to the surface came to the surface. And sometime in the second week, what began to come is a tremendous pain. And with that, I moved into two modes. See, I couldn't write, pass out leaflets or, or go into demonstrations or meet with friends, whatever, like uh, the author Melody does, did. So I had to do it all by myself. So I played inside myself these raging war games. And I played out the war in my mind. I tell you, sometimes uh, Saddam Hussein would win. And the other thing I did was to spend a lot of time making speeches 
uh, to myself, but obviously, you know, to Mr. Bush or whoever it was that uh, was in, in my mind at the moment with righteous, beautiful speeches, you know, powerful. The, the whole thing, of course, could be very ridiculous. And it's not that the, the speeches were, were wrong in the message. I mean, I subscribed to the message. But there was an edge to them. There was a very specific edge to them that it took me a long time to understand. By the third, third week, this edge began to become clear. What was this edge all about? It was undoubtedly a running away from the tunnel of my suffering. It wasn't so much the seeking the light out there, which is an illusory light anyway, but it was a running away from suffering. By tirades, I, I, I knew, I soon knew directly by, by direct discovery, were primarily escape. Now, it wasn't just escape from the situation in Iraq, painful as it is to, to know that in all probability people were being bombed at that time, and they were. It was an escape from my own history and in some way from the history of humanity too, you know. But from this cosmic history of pain that, um, you know, Jungians uh, referred to as the collective unconscious where that pain is stored. In the Buddhist tradition, it is past lives. Basically, it's two ways of saying the same thing. And uh, the Buddha has a vivid description of that. He talks to his monks, his bhikkhus. He says, what do you think, bhikkhus, which is more, the stream of blood that you have shed when you were beheaded as you roamed and wandered on through this long course, this or the waters of the four oceans? And the bhikkhus very dutifully and answered. As we understand the Dhamma taught by the Blessed One, Venerable Sir, the stream of blood that we have shed when our heads were cut off as we roamed and wandered on through this long course, this alone is more than the water of the four oceans. Good, good, bhikkhus, says the Buddha. It is good that you understand the Dhamma taught by me in such a way. The stream of blood that you have shed as you roamed and wandered on through this long course, that alone is more than the water of the four 
great oceans. For a long time, because you have been cows, and when as cows you were beheaded, the streams of blood that you shed is greater than the waters in the four oceans. For a long time, you have been buffalo, sheep, goats, deer, chicken. For a long time, you have been arrested as burglars, highwaymen, and adulterers. And when you were beheaded, the stream of blood that you shed is greater than the, war, than the water in the four great oceans. It doesn't mention the blood shed in wars, but of course, it's part of that. And somewhere else, the Buddha asked the same sort of thing about the tears that you have shed. Are the tears that you have shed greater than the great, that the four great oceans? Yes. So there is, for those who have, uh, of us who are sensitive to it, a long history of pain, which of course, it's mirrored back to us in all the pain that we see around us and in the contemporary wars. And then there is the personal history, which for me is very powerful and has a lot to do with uh, wars like this. I grew up in Argentina. Um, as a young man, I lived in a, under a military dictatorship. I was in jail. I wasn't tortured, but I was, I, I was, torture was next to me. I was part of an underground movement. My father was part of that underground movement. And what comes from that, for me, you can see, is a, a taste, a bitter, intense taste impotence, of helplessness, of inadequacy, inability to do anything. To do anything vis-a-vis -vis disregard for human life and human dignity, which is the same, of course, that plays out in any war, and particularly this war of of an arrogant country against a, a poor little third world country, which has a lot of oil. So, what became clear to me is that behind all these righteous pronouncements, which were okay, I've just made one about oil. Huh? Okay, sure. Nothing wrong with those righteous pronouncements. I mean, I may be wrong, but. Uh, I believe they're right, but clearly, and I'm sort of insisting in this, what I was trying to do is to put some distance between myself and the pain I carried from my personal history and from that sea of tears and blood that the Buddha refers to. That's what I was trying to do. Not even look at the light at the end of the tunnel, tunnel, I had no time. Just a little flashlight, trying to pretend there was light there. That uh, the war will end and everything will be happy or whatever, all these things that I played on. Question, 
is there another way to do this? Of course there is. Of course there is. And it doesn't have to do with going towards the light at the end of the tunnel, but actually with just staying in the tunnel and see what the tunnel has there for us. In other words, seeing the tunnel not as a tunnel, but as a cave that we dwell in. Just a cave. Not a place of transit, but a place where we are. And sometimes it's dark, other times during the day it's light. Just a metaphor, of course. Dark and light are not under our control. Is there something in the dark that we have been missing, that I have been missing? Yes, of course. And what I had been missing is precisely looking at the darkness, looking at that rage within me, that sense of powerless, that righteous indignation, and see where that comes from. And rather than running away from it, bring compassion to it. Compassion towards myself and compassion to all those who were affected by that. Unencumbered by all these polemics and diatribes, useful as it might be at some other point, but not in the middle of the dark. And then something shifted. By the end of by the sorry, by the end of the third week, the beginning of the fourth week, I felt I I was present. I felt I was in the retreat doing what I needed to do. At that point I felt ready too to pop the question and you know, there's an office in the forest retreat. One could, at a certain time of the day, go to the office and ask, say, do you have soap, etc. Well, I asked, are we in war? And we were. And so I came back to sit on that. And, uh, and it was okay. It was okay. I just could be with that. It wasn't obsessive. I was with the pain. I allowed myself to roam in that sea of tears that the Buddha talks about. I allowed myself to roam in the imaginary streets of Baghdad with these people being bombed. And what descended, rather than the indignation that was uh, propelling me away from the cave was a sense of reconciliation with 
things as they are. This is what's happening. Not condoning, no way. But this is what's happening. I could bow down to what truly was outside in Baghdad, in Washington, and inside in me. That's what's happening. And then I was ready to rise up again and do what needed to be done, whatever. So there was a, there was a big shift that I felt uh, in that, that retreat and, of course, in my practice afterwards. I wasn't held hostage any longer by the horrors of the war because I could feel them. didn't have to deny myself being wherever I was. So, in this game of metaphors that I have been playing with you, is uh, not then any longer the chasing after the light at the end of the tunnel, but actually a willingness to sit in the cave and discover the glow of the darkness itself. It's a glow, not of nice things in that darkness, but of ability, that, and a glow that comes from one's ability to be steady with whatever happens. And free of not being entrapped by whatever happens. Not being entrapped by our own pain, which very often is being entrapped by unwillingness to really <coughs> open to it. <coughs> Discovering the glow of the dark is a crucial ingredient of this practice. And that is very well signaled by the Buddha in his life when having been in the luminosity of his palace, pampered and having all his wishes fulfilled, one day he managed to get out of the palace and he ran into what I call the four heavenly messengers. The three of them I want to refer to are uh, sickness, aging, and death, which he ran into in the form of a sick person, a person who was very old, and a corpse. And these three messengers, together with the fourth, who was a, a sadhu, a, a practitioner, gave glow 
to the darkness that he just discovered. Because he could discover that and discover in himself the wish to really look into that. And that's the glow. And of course, the Buddhist teaching, very specifically, starts with suffering. First noble truth is look into suffering. And the glow comes from that. There's no second noble truth and third without the first. There's no escape from suffering without seeing the glow that irradiates from it. So, for us, we do get visited by many heavenly messengers as well. End of a relationship, illness, death of a friend, knowing about the war, sometimes even being directly touched by it, ourselves or relatives of us. So, it is in those situations that we need to look at that darkness and see it with different eyes. Seeing the glow of not being compelled to run away from it, but just being able to stay steady and say, yes, yes, I'm so sad that my friend died, or whatever it is. Yes. And of course, at times, the darkness does dissipate, as I was saying, when it dawns in the cave, it dissipates. Darkness itself dissipates. And sometimes, in our lives, we need to do something to help it dissipate. Yes, that's true, absolutely. Bowing down implies also coming back up. Uh, again, in this play of metaphors and during the month retreat at the forest refuge, my job was a veggie washer. It's a, again a great opportunity to see the importance of getting dirt out. You know, you take these veggies and the water first comes pretty dark. You sit in the practice and the atmosphere can get darkened by stuff that comes up. But in the coming up, also, there is a cleansing. And allowing things to come up, so that there can be some cleaning of the mind, absolutely. Sure. But not before fully honoring the darkness that's there. Because, in fact, the, the washing out, the cleaning out of our mind encumbrances is the result of the looking at them. So, let me be, be drastic. Let me invite you to make to yourselves 
a commitment. The commitment that I ask you to make is a commitment that I will not run away from the dark. That I will instead make peace with the dark itself. Whatever it brings. And if there's a glow, just appreciate that. And while it's really dark, stay with that. Let me close with a few quotes. One is by Wendell Berry. It's a little poem called To Know the Dark. To go in the dark with the light is to know the light. To know the dark, go dark. Go without sight. And find that the dark too blooms and sings and is traveled by dark feet and dark wings. And the other things I want to share with you some number of quotes all from my dear Eti Hillesum. I talked about Eti last night so let me just for those who weren't here say a few words about her. Eti was a Dutch Jewish woman. She lived in Amsterdam in the, and in the 40s she was hit like everybody else with the Nazi persecution of the Jews. So she was sent to a Westerbrook which is a, a transit camp <coughs> and eventually to Auschwitz, where she was gassed in September 1943. Somehow her, her uh, journals uh, survived. Not the last part, the last were destroyed. But, um, and then many letters of her also that she managed to sneak out of the camp, survived. And they were published um, uh, what, what I certainly forget the name of the book. It's not, I tend to say an unfinished life, but it's not an unfinished. An, an, an inter interrupted. Interrupted, an interrupted life, yes. A life interrupted, an interrupted life. You, you've read the 
even into love one day. Although perhaps that's asking too much. It is, however, the only solution. I'm a happy person, and I hold life dear indeed in this year of our Lord, 1942, the 18th year of the war. She's um, now in a letter to class, a friend of hers. Class, all I really wanted to say is this. We have so much work to do in ourselves that we shouldn't even be thinking of hating our so-called enemies. We are hurtful enough to one another as is. It is the only thing we can do, class. I see no alternative. Each of us must turn inwards and destroy in himself all that he thinks he ought to destroy in others. And remember that every atom of hate we add to this world makes it still more inhospitable. You know, this runs consistently through her books, her book. She has her moments of despair, oh yes, oh yes. But even then she knows, she knows where to look in herself. By the way, she's, uh, there's nothing Buddhist in what she writes, in, in the form, but it's uh, just the same teachings as the Buddha, of course. Uh, in only one part of, her, of his big book, I saw her mention meditation. She does that a little apologetically, you know. Like, you may think this is an odd thing, but try it sometime. So, she doesn't come from the culture of meditation. She seems to have discovered it herself. Which is extraordinary. Again, extraordinary circumstances create extraordinary minds. September 42, 1942. Ultimately, we have just one moral duty, to reclaim large areas of peace in ourselves, more and more peace, and to reflect it towards others. And the more peace there is in us, the more peace will also be in our troubled world. April 30, 1942. In the years to come, children will be taught about ghettos and yellow stars. You know, the Jews were marked with yellow stars. Will be taught about ghettos and yellow stars and terror at school, and it will make the hair stand on end. But parallel to, with that textbook's history, also runs another. A few comfortable chairs bought with insurance money because all our possessions were wiped out of existence by bombs, a cup of coffee, a few good friends, a happy atmosphere, and a little philosophizing. 
and life being beautiful and worthwhile all the same. At least that's what I was bold enough to proclaim. Werner, a friend of her, Werner began to look serious then. But we were so contented, the three of us together that night, that very night on which the yellow star was issued. And I said, it's probably wor worth quite a bit being personally involved in the writing of history. You can really tell them what the history books, books leave out. That man in Beethoven's stress that this afternoon, he won't get a mention in them. I looked at him as one might at a first crocus on spring with pure enchantment. He was wearing a huge golden star wearing it triumphantly on his chest. He was a procession and a demonstration all by himself as he cycled along so happily. And all that yellow I suddenly had a poetic vision of the sun rising above him. So radiant and smiling did he look. Come on now, Etty, my girl, she says to herself. Things aren't all as congenial as you make them out. And you really seem to gloss things over with your flights of poetry. Last night, I wondered again if I was so unworldly simply because the German measures affect me so little personally. But I don't fool myself for a single moment about the gravity of it all. And this she's writing in Amsterdam. But when she goes to the camp, she writes the same thing. Basically. And here's one piece. Many feel that the love for mankind languishes at Westerbork because it receives non-nourishing nourishment, meaning that people here don't give you much of an occasion to love them. She's referring both to the inmates and the guards. I mean, it's it's hard. The mass is a hideous monster. Individuals are pitiful, someone said. But I keep discovering that there is no causal connection between people's behavior and the love you feel for them. Love, love for one's fellow man is like an elemental glow that sustains you. The fellow man himself has hardly anything to do with it. She writes this to a friend called Maria. Oh Maria, it's a little bit bare 
of love here, and I myself feel so inexplicably rich. So, let's sit for a few minutes. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.